0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for March 22, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Matt Kaiser. Matt, welcome. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> and Manny Ortiz, Hi. welcome. And uh, John Hogeboom. Hello. Hey, John. <laughs> so uh, we're all here today, nobody online, but uh, nevertheless, we'll continue in our, in our true form sense. I'm Brian Rickstro, by the way. And you know, I think it's a good thing to start each day with a dilemma. Well,
2: uh, that's how we're going to start our show. <laughs> so um, I don't know if this is if they coined this term, but uh, Duo Security put out a report, um, and they titled it Bring Your Own Dilemma. But I've heard other right. people say that before. Um, BYOD, a lot of people know that acronym to mean bring your own device. Mm-hmm. And the pun here is bring your own dilemma. And what they're talking about here is they did a little bit of a study where they grabbed a bunch of um, various laptops mm-hmm. and uh, right out of the box and tried to determine, you know, if you, you know, deployed those or put those um, in dangerous areas, like public Wi-Fi networking. and whatnot, networking networking dangerous areas, yeah. um, mm-hmm. what would their, what kind of um, uh, threat service do they have right. that they might be exposed to? Yeah. And uh, it was interesting. A lot of what they, uh, they brought up is things that are not, spectacularly new to us the things that we know about so they mentioned like the Windows uh, proxy auto detect you know mm-hmm. if you go to a public Wi-Fi hotspot somebody could pretend that their uh, proxy or answer those mm-hmm. requests and then intercept so there's a lot of man-in-the-middle opportunities that they talk about and then he also talks about how you can mitigate those um, he also kind of got off on a tangent I thought about uh, customer experience privacy issues in Windows 10 a lot of people know about those issues but I don't consider them vulnerabilities that are going um, to give me the, an issue yeah, it's from not a necess- security I mean, if perspective. If
1: you're considering a situation where you're concerned about protecting corporate information, it's not necessarily going to expose that corporate information. There right. is a possibility there might be exposure of you know websites that are used or visited, that type of thing perhaps. Right.
2: Um, the big one I thought that is a good point uh, is a lot of the uh, bloatware that a lot of these laptops come with mm-hmm of just OEM software, of just various things that different vendors put on there maybe to support their own hardware for patches and updates mm-hmm. or just other junk
1: so, yeah, miscellaneous software and, that gets yeah. ju-
2: put it add on for right. whatever reason. And sometimes those have vulnerabilities. I mean, I know, God, I wish I could remember the, it just came to mind, but there was one that was an antivirus that had a vulnerability on a particular port that used to get scanned all the time. Yeah. Uh, had a remote code well, ex- some of it, exploit. I, I, mean, I think
1: all the name brand ones have had some sort of vulnerability in the past. I mean, that, right. that, it, it, those sorts of things exist. So I think we're gonna be talking about something like that later on today. So. Right,
2: but, and then anyway, so he goes through a lot of these different um, uh, points of vulnerability, especially with a new laptop, and really the point is, is that if you allow your employee, or your employees to use their own devices, bring their own devices into the corporate network, what sort of exposure does that right. um, you know, expose to you and your company, mm-hmm. uh, especially when that device can go to these public Wi-Fi hotspots where they're kind of in a danger zone. Maybe they'll get compromised or maybe they go to a conference and they hook up to some public Wi-Fi and now they're compromised and they bring them back into the corporate network and, and use them. Mm-hmm. And you probably, as a company, don't have um, any sort of management capability of that device, like you do with a corporate asset. So I know most companies, ours included, has ways if it's a company device, we can um, get information, log data and whatnot, and also uh, make sure that the patches and updates and everything are happening on it, where you won't get that with a bring your own device. Um, So it's an interesting article. It talks mostly about the mitigation steps there of what you could do with these types of devices to um, to make sure that at least they have a minimal level of exposure to vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. whether your users in your company are going to do that. It's just, to me, it was more of let's think about how to approach bring your own device. Yeah. And um, you know, I think we've talked about uh, one of the possibilities, or the, a smarter approach, as opposed to just bringing your personal laptop in, plug it into the local network at work, and doing whatever on it, having free reign on the network, maybe you force, bring your own device, laptops to go to like a an H, hosted virtual desktop or a VM, right. and that's all they can do. So you have some very constrained network access, maybe just RDP or or PC over IP, which is the mm-hmm. better version of RDP.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. There, there are perhaps a number of approaches that could be taken. I think. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting because, it, it, near as I can understand, I think BYOD kind of started out as a use your mobile but device because mm-hmm. and be able to access corporate assets with a mobile device. But then there was this dilemma: well, what about you know uh, usage charges and you know how do you deal with things like that? And so the uh, the notion of partitioning to say you know you sort of have a work persona and then you have a you know a personal persona and to be able to keep those separate and so there are sort of sandbox type tools that reside on mobile devices to be able to support this thing and I'm going somewhere with (laughs) this. that whole concept could you know I think it kind of extended in well you know let's take the the more general laptop scenario and you could do sort of the same thing I don't know that there's a way to clearly partition but there you know, perhaps there is. I don't know of any software tools that really do that. I mean, you could argue, maybe you have a VM that's specifically for work, you know, there'd be one perhaps way to do it. But I think, you know, kind of thinking how I would approach this personally that is if I wanted to bring my own device to work, I would almost embrace, you know, signing off and say, you know what, manage it as a corporate asset effectively. I get to choose what device I'm using. I get to use it for the, my things as well. But lock it down. You know, I, why? Why should I? <laughs> you know, I don't really want to have to do all that stuff. I'd rather have somebody else do it. I mean, other than for the learning experience, perhaps. But the
0: easiest so, way is probably to do a, a, a dual boat with you know dual encrypted partitions. That'd be another
1: way to do it as well. Because that yeah.
0: way, it makes it a lot harder for the user to. Accidentally do something on the corporate side that was supposed to be personal, or vice mm-hmm. versa.
1: That's true. I, I think one of the flaws that you run, and I think this is feeds right into the sort of the dilemma, is I think one of the flaws in that thinking is that we rarely are just at work or just this at home. I mean, we, we're living our lives while we're at work. Mm-hmm. We're living our work while we're at home. And so there's, all, there's not really a, a clear separation between the two. So you need to, at very least, to be able to transition between them very easily and at best to be able to kind of, you know, in fact, blur the lines and manage that a little bit. So
3: I, I kind of equate this to, um, if I can equate this to something at home, it's, it's our dilemma with IoT devices. So when mm-hmm. you're at home and you have an IoT device, you typically don't want that IoT device to sit on the same LAN segment as the rest of your protected um, components, mm-hmm. right? Your yeah. so, right, exactly. <laughs> so typically what they right, exactly. So typically what they say is you should have your IoT devices on a separate network than mm-hmm. your so typically, you know, you should probably be able to do that same thing that same scenario and bring it into a corporate environment where you keep things that you don't know about, you think mm-hmm. are, you know, you label them unsecure or an unknown, mm-hmm. and you keep those separated. So things like, on, you know, when they come in via VPN, you could, by profile, mm-hmm. understanding that this device is not corporate, you know, doesn't, um, mm-hmm. is, it's not a corporate asset, keep it off on a, on a separate VPN profile, right? right? And keep it separated from the rest of your co- corporate network. Right. Obviously, you'll have to open certain things up so that they can get to certain things, but keeping it in a, in a separated area, I think, is a smart move.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, That's uh, so things can be done with the network access control, not assigning DHCP addresses right. unless the device is authenticated and recognized and managed and protected in a proper way. And in fact, that's a similar model that's used in uh, MDM, Mobile Device Management, to make sure that if you're providing access to corporate assets that there's a mechanism to do that and authentication of the device and such. So, so it is still a dilemma. I think uh, it depends on the organization, what kinds of options organizations are able to support. And I think there are a lot of options really kind of available. But it's, it's really that balance between you know, how separate you want things to be which is, you know, you could have corporate assets and home, your personal assets and that's completely separate. It can be kind of a pain. And then perhaps putting them together in sandboxes, manage mobile, de- or mobile device management or having a similar kind of thing on computers and then to be able to, uh, you know, provide a little compatibility or merging between those. But personally, I would embrace having a organization helping to support with the security of my devices.
0: I would put exactly. one more thing into the mix, actually, and that's all these sort of background radiation services that keep showing up. When you load a, a Windows laptop, you know, you ask it, you know, are you at home or are you at work mm-hmm. or do you mm-hmm. not know you really know? That sort of stuff, you know, from a security standpoint, I'd love to have my laptop keep all that stuff off mm. initially and then let me make an informed decision later on. And I think some of this attack service would go away by default if... We were able to make that decision in the the interest of security and not in the interest Mm -hmm. of convenience for the user who just wants to share their files.
1: So sometimes the computers are kind of asking questions that people aren't really prepared to be able to answer. Because I
0: know they're trying to make it easy and make a decision on where am I but Mm -hmm. there's more to it than that I think that if a user wants to be truly informed they have to ask a little harder questions.
1: Yep absolutely. All right good. So uh, Matt let's go to you here and we I guess we kind of mentioned that the concept of vulnerabilities in software and, in fact, it exists in antivirus software from time to time. And so uh, tell us a little bit about this one.
0: It absolutely does. So there was a, a blog post by Tavis Ormandy, and if you haven't been following Tavis's work, he's basically been knocking down antivirus vendor after antivirus vendor, finding significant bugs, security bugs in antivirus software, which some people might think, well, that just seems insane you know these are supposed to be written by people with a knowledge of security in order to secure us Mm -hmm. what they're actually doing is is adding more vulnerability to the system Uh, so he had written a blog post about the fact that komodo he had just released four different software vulnerabilities was about to release a fifth at the same time they were receiving an award for excellence in software Mm -hmm. and so that's that's really what the point of the blog post was about Mm -hmm. to me it it started kicking off the the discussion of you know the, the this is it's always been a problem, I guess, with antivirus software that the complexity has to be at least as complex as the files and the situations that it has to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know what the, 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 the answer is here. but
1: Well, and it's, and it's perhaps even more complex or challenging for something like antivirus where they're trying to basically ward off a very agile threat environment. Mm-hmm. That is, the, the threat actors, first of all, it's one organization trying to defend off many threat organizations mm-hmm. effectively and each of them with their own set of creativity and having to be able to adjust to those new threats or lose your your viability as a as mm-hmm. a devu- as a, a marketable product and so i i per- personally appreciate the challenge but one of my pet peeves has always been that no matter how you slice it you can't add software and in theory, really improve the security. That it's adding complexities, you pointed out, and it's going to add flaws. The software is going to have flaws associated with it. It's a matter of how many of them. So, yeah. this is a this is really again similar to the dilemma discussion we had earlier. It's a little bit of a, a little bit of a dilemma for the antivirus product providers as well. And uh, I think it kind of reinforces that you need layers of security. That is, it's you don't want to be fully relying on any virus as your security
0: solution. Sure. Well, well, Tavis has made pretty good points in that a lot of the code that exists in these software, in these antivirus software, have been around for a while. In fact, I know for a fact that they actually share engines, and have been sharing engines for a long time. But no one has gone back and done a refresh and said, you know, is this going to be a problem because we've all got the same potentially buggy code. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did want to kind of make a, make a distinction because I know that there's always a back and forth between antivirus uh, software writers and malware writers. And it's the, always the back and forth of, I detect you today, today, and, and tomorrow. I no longer detect you because you've made your change. It, but mm-hmm. this is not about malware evading antivirus. This right. is about actual software flaws in the system. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And
2: I would say that the bar is set higher... In my opinion, for the antivirus vendors, mostly because their code is going to run in privilege mode, yeah. mm-hmm. whereas not most most other code doesn't need to run in privilege execution mode, where the AV stuff is going to have to. So it's going to mm-hmm. have deep roots into the system, so that if there is a flaw, it's a quick gateway right into the underlying um, you know nethers of the operating system to be able to do what you want to do. Yeah. So
3: absolutely, yeah, and their, and their code, their code, and their capability. Is out there for everyone to test against. So it's not something that you know is hidden away and very few people have access to it. Mm-hmm. Anybody that has basically a a machine out there probably is running antivirus, which means if you have it, they have it. They can test against it. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to, right?
1: Yeah. I guess one other comment on this. I think it, I mean the. Uh I think one of the additional challenges, I'm, I'm, I'm the devil's advocate here today, aren't I? <laughs> one of the challenges they have is that you have to meet a price point. You have to be competitive in the sense, you know, I'm a security guy and I get a little sensitive about having to pay a significant amount of money for for antivirus and so that really kind of constrains the, the budget a little bit. So, all right. So. Uh, of course, on the attacker side, they're always looking for another little twist. And so, Manny, tell us a little bit about how domain names and yeah, websites so, can become a lever.
3: So this this uh, this this story is basically, uh, I mean, we we've seen this before. This is nothing really new. Um, the story is just sort of going into where where this was found. So this is a this is a Krebs story, um, and uh, it talks about uh, open redirects. So the open redirects, we all know that you know redirects are. A, a thing of the web, right? To redirect a <laughs> lot
1: of vulnerable websites out there. Exactly. I mean, they, it might not be a direct vulnerability to the website owner and operator, but but right,
3: it it can be used that way. So I mean, you know, they call it they call it a flaw. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a flaw. Um, and uh, and so I, I guess in this particular case, he was looking at um, these U.S. Uh, state websites, um, in particular the the .gov and the .mil, and basically it um you know the 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 open redirects allow you to to basically insert your own malicious you know domain in there Mm -hmm. and and the user obviously doesn't realize that they see the beginning part and say oh this this looks good I'm going to click it. Mm-hmm. And so um, it goes a step further in this scenario, what Krebs is talking about here, which is the use of the shorteners. So you know, using uh, um, the, the bit.ly um, to shorten it even you know, obfuscates the, the, you know, the exactly. URL even further now. Mm-hmm. So now. So now when you take a, a, a .gov or a .mil and you shorten it, it becomes 1.usa.gov, um with the slash and then some you know nonsense or you know some and so and so now that really looks like a legitimate link Mm -hmm. um and so you know so that's it's talking about you know you know this these government sites having these open redirects and obviously the you know the the fix here is to to clean that up not Mm -hmm. have these open redirects or
1: have some really good antivirus software
3: there you go. Well,
2: when, we're, <laughs> when we're talking about open redirects, here, are we saying that this government website has something where I can just, like, if I'm going to visit their URL, they've got some parameters I can string to the end there that's going to take me to my web, my site if yeah. I just put. Yeah. Okay, All right, I just want to make sure it's not like they're exploiting it and dumping their stuff in now like we've seen with drive-by stuff. The the site. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. okay.
3: yeah. yeah. So and and what they what they had what Krebs did was he you know. I guess in typical Krebs style, he takes it all the way to the you know to the next level. Um, so he was talking about that the government has a has a site that you can actually go to and actually, you can actually see. And I went to it, yeah. and you can actually see all the redirects actually scrolling through the screen. So you can actually start doing screen captures and watching all these different redirects, and you'll see as they start scrolling through, you'll see some really fishy stuff oh, come yeah. start coming through, mm. right? Mm. Um, and then, and then he went and did an actual test. So he went out and did his own test. And what he did was he went out to the uh, malware domains list. And he took a bunch of the top-rated you know, malware uh, domains and started doing his own test and creating these, these shortcuts. And uh, because th- they're supposed to have some sort of filter in place that's supposed to filter out this stuff, but it turns out that you know when he did his test, almost everything that he tried got through. And the only things that really got blocked were things that ended in, in .exe.
0: Now, was, was that code checking being performed at the, the, um, the shortener level, or was that being done at each individual open redirect? Because I would expect it to be at the redirect.
3: Yeah, uh, I think it was done at the redirect. I'm not positive, though. Okay. But yeah. yep. So
1: what is one to do? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's so I, I've, I've I've dealt with a few bug bounty cases that are similar to this, mm-hmm. and the, the the general rule is if you're going to have redirects, if you're going to support it on your site, you have to limit it in some way. You, you have pick to have domains controls. that, it's, or even top level domains that you accept, or if you can spare the the cycles. Have someone validate each URL that's being submitted and, and say, yes, this is on our whitelist, or no, it's not. Mm-hmm. And that way you can control, because some websites will link to hundreds of other websites on the internet. But if mm-hmm. you can maintain that list and say, today, you know, I added cnn.com, cnn.com goes on the whitelist, and we're good mm-hmm. to
1: go. Well, and, it, and the motivation here is that it is, it does t- tie back to your reputation as a hoster of a website. Mm-hmm. So to have some controls around what you're sending people to really makes a lot of sense. You should check your yeah. web
0: logs to make sure you're not being abused in this manner.
1: Well, that's a good point. Yep. Looking that's for solid. abuses of, along those lines. And to Absolutely. add
0: one more thing, you know, the reason people use Open redirects a lot of the time is to track where people go from their website. It gives mm-hmm. you one last chance to hit the server before you end up on somebody else's web space. Mm-hmm. If you don't need that functionality, just ax it. You know, just let people okay, go, go right where they need to go.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I, it, Obviously, this is in the public. Do you know if anybody is uh, doing something to correct
3: these issues? So, there's a couple of things that you can do to sort of help yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, because obviously, you know, you've got these links, and what do you do? You know, how do you how do you figure out where where am I actually going if I click some sort of link? So, I mean, Google Google has an, an extension. Called un- unshortened d- dot IT, Right. Um, so test, and basically test, link test a link. Effect, right? right. So you can test a link, and then uh, and then on the on the Bitly side, uh, if you add a plus sign to the end of a Bitly uh, uh, link, mm-hmm. it'll actually take you to a page that shows you the actual expanded uh, really URL good. that you're going to.
1: Okay. So it's an opportunity for end users to get check some things. A little extra work, but you can at least get some idea of what things are going on. Yep. All right. Very good so um, I guess uh, obviously these things are automated they present a real challenge and so sometimes a little manual intervention yeah, can help. I'm,
2: I'm converting everything, I'm getting rid of everything electronic.
1: Are you going to be yeah, gonna be a settler, John? <laughs> I'm gonna be a settler. I'm gonna just, I,
2: I read this article and I've completely shifted my mind so I'm gonna get rid of all my computers and I'm just gonna have everything manual, manual switches and levers. Yeah. Anyway, the point of this article is um, there was some mentioning of the Ukraine power outage that we talked about, I think it was in mm-hmm. December of just a few months back. And um, this was an article kind of talking about in these critical types of systems, um, we should really start thinking about adding layers of security because what's been happening, the trend lately, is let's connect everything to the Internet. Mm -hmm. Let's just make it so easy for all these devices to talk to each other and help manage each other and do their own operations and get the humans out of the picture. But that also introduces a lot of risk because now you've potentially opened... Mm-hmm. these critical systems up for attack via uh, you know, electronic means over mm-hmm. computer, over internet and whatnot. Um, there were a couple of interesting quotes. Um, I think it was a colonel or something that was uh, being quoted here. And he said, you know, some, when, when you're buying these capabilities to uh, get your devices internet connected, uh, you're buying a capability, but at the same time, you're buying a vulnerability, which I thought was a real truth there that... Um, just one. It's, yeah.
1: Just one vulnerability. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's not usually just one. <laughs> Um, So really, the point of the article was to kind of talk about you should always have some physical backup hardware um, to the most vulnerable uh, places of your key infrastructure. And um, uh, I'm trying to think what else was in there. Um, He talked about some other things beyond just um, real critical things like power plants and whatnot. He did discuss, you know, in our nuclear facilities, there are manual mitigations. So if the electronics go out, they can—they have manual means to drop control rods, to stop the reactor processes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're relying on electronics, you might, that might not work, you know? And having a manual fail safe is definitely uh, a good way to go, especially with things that can cause a lot of serious damage if they're not there. Um, but he also talked about things like, you know, we have all types of devices. We talk about this on the show all the time. You know, pacemakers that are, internet accessible or at least near field accessible, uh, insulin pumps, airplane control systems, prison door locks, everything has been, and cars, everything's been you know, connected to the internet. And mm-hmm. there is a lot of convenience factor there and a lot of opportunity for innovation and whatnot, but it also introduces risk when you um, have some of these areas that could open more risk when they're electronically connected mm-hmm. like a prison cell. Um, where is it really needed? So, and well, if not, have some manual means to to mitigate the situation. Right. As yeah, well.
1: I think it's a matter of managing that risk, having at least an understanding of the risk, and and making sure that it's a it, it's an appropriate decision in consideration of what the potential consequences might be. That right. is, and you know, and you've got there there the benefits that you get, and then there are consequences, and there's some line where you draw in between in terms of the level of automation that that is appropriate. I don't think the Ukraine case was by design necessarily. I think that was just because that's the level, of the state that it's in, in terms of maturity, for lack of a better term. And, um, you know, they, they were able to benefit from the situation where they had some manual controls in place. And so the question becomes, can you put automation in place and do it in a way that the risk really can be managed in an appropriate way. The thing I I find kind of challenging today is that you really can't set up a computer and put it into a secure state without connecting it to the internet to get the updates. Right. <laughs> you know, I that it's a convenience factor to be able to get the updates and so it requires that you have controls around it that allow certain aspect you know things to be controlled. And I think more often than not, in fact, I think we're going to be talking a little bit about this kind of topic, it's the things that get compromised or really have problems aren't really because it's, a, you know, a sophisticated thing necessarily. More often than not, it's because basic things haven't been done. So if you really want to control a system and maybe have it be able to get updates, you can control where it goes to to get updates, but generally speaking, it's like well, give it access to everything, and then we'll only visit there. You know, there are all kinds of things that could be done that are perhaps better than are typically done today. So, but you're right; it's a matter of balancing. There are certain situations, nuclear power, certainly a case where many lives could be at stake if if you can't get those control rods down and do it quickly and in the right. You know, right. if you really need to do it, um, but you know. It's a matter of balance. There are a lot of other scenarios where perhaps automation is better.
3: Right. If, you've, if you've watched any episode of CSI Cyber, you know that those kind of things can be hacked in a very short amount of time. Right. And very Clear easily, with a couple of keystrokes. <laughs> it was on
0: TV, so it must be true. <laughs> I was actually going to mention the first episode of Battlestar Galactica <laughs> is basically this argument, is that don't connect everything to the internet because when the Cylons show up, they will they will hack the crap out of you. <laughs> and then the only ship that gets out is the one that had the old technology.
2: It's but didn't they create the Cylons?
0: They did. they did, yeah.
2: So they turned against them. So it's kind of like Terminator. Terminator. it's, yeah. it's like that.
0: It's...
1: <laughs> all right. That's I all we, I got. I think we've got right <laughs> oh, yeah, no television. It's compelling, but... Speaking of malvertising...
0: <laughs> oh, I <are we? laughs>
1: All right. <laughs> so... Um, you know, we talked a little bit about, I guess, the, the redirects, and this is kind of a, a little bit of a different twist on it. So, tell us a little bit about what's going on here.
0: Yeah, so there was a pretty major malvertising campaign that went on this past week.
1: Uh, this goes on all the time. It right? does.
0: Yeah. It absolutely does. Uh, in this case it was much more much more pronounced because it hit so many top-tier sites, mm-hmm. sites like uh, New York Times, BBC, AOL, mm-hmm. uh, the NFL, Newsweek. The list goes, goes on for a while and a number of outlets cover this.
1: Now they, they didn't necessarily do anything wrong here.
0: They did not necessarily so what typically happens in a malvertising campaign is that the whoever's providing the ad services there's usually a an auction going on constant auction to place ads with eyeballs mm-hmm. um, and whoever's providing these ads has to do some sort of vetting I know it's not always clear or transparent how much is being done and when and why, mm-hmm. um, but what will happen is criminals will pay for ads to be placed. Um, in this case, they actually took a couple of domains that were, had the word media at the end to sort of give them legitimacy, and I think some of them had actually just recently expired. So they sort of jumped on the coattails and said, this domain already has, um, what's the word? A reputation. For being a legitimate media company mm-hmm. therefore we will take this and hijack it in order to get ourselves a better chance of getting to the front page of a real important site mm-hmm. and that's exactly what happened so angular exploit kit got pushed to a huge number of people um, it was pushing uh, BDEP downloader, and I think Tesla Crypt was another one of the payloads. Okay. And
1: so it, it, one was either like a ransomware, mm-hmm. right? And the other one being basically a downloader so it could do whatever. I think so. It was like
0: a, a stage to offer somebody else installs or something mm-hmm. like that. So it was a big deal. I mean, this this sort of stuff really shouldn't happen. And I know we mm-hmm. try and impress on users the idea that Go to the sites that you know and trust, the ones that mm-hmm. you've been going to, the ones that have big names. But when this sort of thing happens, it completely undercuts our argument because even going to the sites that everybody knows—they're in the, like the LX at top hundred—there's nothing to say mm-hmm. that it couldn't happen again.
1: That's absolutely true. But at least it's a relatively rare event,
0: and I, I would like to think that. But i, <laughs> I, I, well, I worry that these guys are getting better cases that we haven't to, heard of.
2: Yeah.
1: Sorry. I mean, it's probably not as rare as
2: we think. I know mm-hmm. that we've definitely seen cases of this mm-hmm. uh, crop up.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, so, good argument to keep things patched too, right?
0: Well, that's the thing. Users can do their own thing. They can keep their machines patched. Mm-hmm. They can disable plugins. This the same things we'd always say. If you mm-hmm. want to defend against exploit kits, these are the, the things they're going to take advantage of: is your your plugins mm-hmm. and the, the outdated browsers. I'd like to see more action on the side of ad companies, personally. I'd mm-hmm. like to see them either doing more vetting of the backgrounds of the companies that are providing ads to them. I'd like to see them try and limit the content that they types that they push mm-hmm. if you don't have to push flash to my browser please don't mm-hmm. if you don't have to push Silverlight and other things like that please don't mm-hmm. if there's any way that if you're a provider you have an agreement with whoever you're taking these ads from that you host the content yourself and you run a scan on it to make sure there's nothing fishy going on mm-hmm. because if i tell you i've got my ad it's here at ad.jpg. You know, or, or add.txt, you know, if I wanted to change the content type on the back end, sometimes it's going to still work. It's going to be rendered by the browser as the type that it is, and then we're, we've got the same problem again. Mm-hmm. So well,
1: Hopefully a high-profile incident like this will help to uh, inspire a little more effort along the lines of what you just described. So good suggestions there. Very right, cool. So, uh, Manny, let's go back to you, and I guess we're going to get to back to basics here. That's right. <laughs> so, so lay it out for us
3: so so this uh, this story that I ran across was uh, I, I picked up on it because I just I liked the way that it talked about um, a, a CISO's playbook and mm-hmm. associates it to sort of like football terms right and uh, uh, we may have talked about this in the past and and uh, but it, it basically um, talks about um, about knowing your own weaknesses so Mm -hmm. you know understanding what your own weakness is is sort of the starting point to be able to protect your infrastructure correctly Mm -hmm. Um, it has this great uh, quote from vince lombardi who's a legendary uh, uh, green bay packers coach Um, it says uh, some of us will do our jobs well and some will not but we will all be judged on one thing the result so you know what we're saying here is is that you know doesn't matter what you know how well you do your job and this holds true for IT security in the end as long as you don't get hacked or you lose your data you're doing a great job Mm -hmm. right Um, so um, and and basically he's going through a bunch of the um, sort of the 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 troubles that the CSOs and the, their organizations go through the you know the complexity of the networks and their security tools and the the skills and the methodologies that they use to put together their their playbooks. And
1: it's not getting any simpler. No, there, no there, there, there are a plethora of venture capital organizations out there showing their, right. you know selling their new security widget, security information database, their security right. this, their security that, and trying to. Get all those things or decide which ones you even consider yep. and um, managing that is a, is a real trick in itself yeah
3: so I mean it, you know in the end it it really comes down to um, you know having to have some sort of playbook and there's no there's really no right and wrong answer to it because each individual organization um, has these different complexities that will change that playbook mm-hmm. Depending on what their situation is, so you know you can't just look at somebody's playbook and say, "Oh, that's that's wrong. That's never going to work." That playbook may work in one situation versus not, you know, not in another. Mm -hmm. Um, And we all know that the adversaries have their own playbook, and that's that's the you know that's the the thing that we're trying to defend against, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And, you know, they the 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 article goes into um, into the um, the report from last year, um, basically talking about self-scouting that 60 percent of breaches um, exploit well-known flaws. So we all know that. Right. Um, With known techniques. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's, you know, what we see all the time is that, you know, these the flaws that they're finding are flaws that are well-known. It's mm-hmm. not like it's not like these these zero days. They're well-known flaws and they're easy to exploit. Um, and that's and that's a major problem there. Um, and then and then the article sort of closes off with this great quote again from Vince Lombardi that says perfection is not attainable. But if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, good so point. you're always trying to improve that playbook to keep up with things um, and you're never going to be perfect, but as long as you're heading in that direction, you're, you're, you're probably doing right.
1: Yeah. Okay. Very good. You know, I, th- I think my translation will be, uh, I mean, I think this is a, somewhat of a, a s- similar statement that is, you want to get back to basics understand you know get a basic strategy in place but you know ultimately when it comes right down to it in security details matter and so when you're going to do patch management you have to actually do patch management and that's really what matters it doesn't matter that you know where the patches are needed you got to actually do the patches (laughs) and that's that's going to lock down a quite a number of things and getting some of those basics down is really going to make a difference. That's the
3: fundamentals that he's, yep. that he's talking about here. Is The fundamentals is, is, is let's, let's look at our own stuff first mm-hmm. and let's make sure that we've got our own defenses in place. We, we're looking at you know, where are we vulnerable that's the first place to look. Don't you know? Don't look outside and go. What, what are they doing? How are they trying to attack us? No. Let's look at our own stuff. Let's see where you know where we've got these holes. Patch mm-hmm. up these holes, and then you know, then we can start from there.
1: Yeah, I think there's some good references along these lines. I think the the NIST cybersecurity framework is yes. a, a good starting place to get sort of to those basics. Um, And and to your point, I think it really really is sort of the right structure to start with. But I think ultimately it comes down to the challenge of a CISO is not just security. The challenge of a CISO is really managing a business, making a business successful, and doing that in a secure way. So it, it becomes a balancing act between, just like we were talking about earlier, that you really have to manage the functionality and balance that functionality and the costs associated with the security so that you're in the right place from a risk management point of view. Okay. But as you, uh, as I think we had talked about earlier, um, you know, a CISA is going to be managed or basically judged by the result. If they are not hacked, then they will be successful. Right. If they are hacked, they will be looking for a new job. Exactly. <laughs> All right, and, uh, and with that, we're going to look and see if we can find some malicious activity. No, of course, there's no shortage of that. Uh, looking at the internet weather for the last week or so here, first of all, scan probes on port 1720 TCP. This is H323, which is, uh, I think, sometimes used as an alternative to SIP, or it's sort of the uh, international standard version of that, uh, that gets uh, perhaps used in a number of. Um, Uh, VoIP gateways, voice over IP gateways. We're looking at the last 90 days of activity here and um, in this particular case uh, we're seeing an increase in the number of probes. Most of these probes are from Russia. I don't know that there's any significance to that. There's actually a single IP address that was generating most of this and it happened to be an address in in Russia. So uh, if you're running a voice gateway, uh, a VoIP gateway, Uh, particularly H323, you know, I didn't actually look at SIP to see if there was some corresponding increase. Uh, There perhaps has been, but uh, there is quite often uh, activity to try to exploit VoIP gateways for the purpose of performing uh, either toll fraud, voice fraud, uh, directing calls to uh, basically a high payback organization. Uh, and in some other cases, uh, to use them for other types of, um, you know, uh, scamming, like vishing, for example, right? Yeah,
2: and I feel like there's a lot of video conference stuff that happens on three two three. I just can't uh, remember. That's a good it's been a while since I've looked at it.
1: But. Yep. Uh, and also, uh, this is actually it says scan pro. This is actually scan sources on port 1720 TCP, and it looks like, um, in addition to that single Russian IP address uh... we did also see an increase in the number of sources to doing this scanning activity around the same time frame uh... basically a spike that started around the same time frame as that increase as well as a, uh, a more recent spike in activity uh... now this is not you know we we've often talk about port 23 telnet and the number of sources they're scanning at and we measure that in hundreds of thousands of sources this we are measuring in less than 100 sources, so it's not a a significant change, but uh, there is definitely some activity going on there that appears to be coordinated in some way. Next item here is bytes on source port 69 UDP. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago, I think, uh, on a uh, new uh, reflective denial service attack vector that had been, I guess, I don't know if it was newly discovered, but certainly newly being tried, tried to put into practice and uh, so over the last couple of weeks we've seen some reflective denial of service attack attempts using this port and uh, we're seeing here that you know not real significant activity taking place but um, we're keeping an eye on it to see how this develops over time and you should be also keeping an eye on it to make sure that you don't have any TFTP exposed um, and don't be surprised if you see denial of service activity using that vector. Uh, Looking at the top 10 most probed ports uh, at the top of the list here, I think, uh, well, in the other category, I'll start there. I think we had in the order of about 1,140 sources that were, or or different ports that were being probed uh, in this other category. So the other category is pretty big. And then uh, first on the list, port 23, TCP, Not any big changes on that port, so I don't think I even uh, uh, included a graph here. We'll see if I did, I don't even remember. Uh, And then followed by port 80 TCP, not a significant change there either. Uh, Followed by 22 TCP, that's SSH, um, and that has been, uh, I think we saw a little bit of a hump in terms of number of sources that were probing on that port. Uh, Again, relatively stable, 445 TCP. Uh, Last week we took a look at that, and we are seeing sort of a downward taper over a long period of time. Uh, and then these other ports, uh, not any significant changes, but we're gonna take a look at a couple of them to, to, uh, to see how they, uh, how they look. Again, looking at uh, the most sources doing that probing, the largest one, port 23, followed by 53.4.13 UDP. Uh, those are both basically um, going after you know, devices that are connected to the internet and have uh, either Telnet or that uh, Netis router backdoor exposed. And then, um, let's see here, we have, uh, I think we're going to take a look at fourteen. Or excuse me, 4028 TCP which uh, has uh, been uh, active over the last couple of weeks here and jumped up on the list in terms of the number of sources. So, taking a look at the scam probes on port 53413, uh, way down compared to what we had been seeing previously. Uh, I don't think there are a lot of actor groups that are going after this particular uh, device. Uh, but it is one that, uh, out that's still out there. They have a lot of devices that are still compromised, and uh, perhaps they've just uh, settled in the recruiting activities or uh, maybe some disruptive effort have been put into place. We can only hope. And then looking at scan sources on port 1433 as well as 3306. So 1433 being Microsoft SQL database and 3306 being MySQL database. Um, We're looking at the last 90 days of activity here. I'll just point out a couple things. The blue one is actually the Microsoft SQL, and you can see that there was basically a jump in activity over the last week or so here. I think that started on on March 14th and started going up. And then we see a similar little jump in activity on uh, and MySQL, uh, but that one didn't sustain and continue to grow, and I'm not sure what the reason for the divergence is, but I don't think it was a coincidence that both these started growing at the same time. And I'll just point out that these uh, spikes in activity here that basically go through the top of the graph are ones where I think it's a research organization that's probing around just to see uh, what databases have been exposed, you know, or exposed to the Internet and using that for cataloging purposes. So uh, those are probably not as... um, Uh, is significant. Uh, Next one here, scan sources on port 4028 TCP. And uh, John, perhaps you have a a few comments Uh, on this one?
2: I mean, we've talked about this in the past couple of weeks, maybe Mm -hmm. even more. Yeah. Um, And I'm not even sure what DT server is, but that's what the IANA registered port is for that. Uh, Although I don't think that that's what's going on here. So when we take a look at the actual scan sources involved, um, there's a very high concentration. I think you might have that on the next slide. Yeah, kind of take um, that. In the Philippines, Brazil, Thailand, Iraq, which I find interesting, mm-hmm. China. And then it really starts to taper off into these other countries. So really much heavy lower in numbers. Asia
1: and a little bit in the Middle East. Right. right.
2: Yeah. And when I took a look at where those are, they are Internet service providers, consumer mm-hmm. uh, you know, ISPs providing uh, Internet access to consumers. And uh, so I'm speculating, and when I poked a couple of them, I could see that there are like home router type devices. There are some variations in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I suspect it might be that there are certain communities of hardware uh, home router type devices that are being compromised in these regional countries. Maybe something that those providers are providing to their customers mm-hmm. to get onto the internet. Um, again, this is speculative. Um, The 4028 TCP historically, I think a couple of years ago, there was some loose coupling with that and the IDRA or the light IDRA toolkit, uh, which is a botnet toolkit for IOT type devices like this. Um, But what they're searching for other than that, I'm not quite sure because I don't know that there's anything really listening on that port, um, except maybe these other IDRA botnets nets um, or devices that are compromised with that. So anyway, that's all we have right now. Um, don't really. It's just interesting that there's large concentrations in certain parts of the world that mm-hmm. you know I don't normally expect to see high densities of them in those
1: areas. Right. Um, and and this is completely conjecture at this point, but it is kind of interesting to see that this 53413 activity is going down. Um, this being a device that's generally a lot more popular in Asia mm-hmm. than it is in, like the United States, for example, and we have a you know a loose geographic correlation with uh, this 4028 activity. I don't know that there's any relation, you know, actual relationship between the two, but the time frame is relatively close as well. So mm-hmm. um, it is a possibility that those two are related in some way. That is, the 53413. Backdoor port is being used to infect devices, connect them to some sort of a botnet. I don't know if that introduces the 4028 backdoor that perhaps is being exploited in this case, but um, perhaps something we can uh, yeah. investigate a little bit further. I'd like to find out what's, what that's all about better. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't we all. <laughs> so that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech channel on YouTube, as well as on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at at Security. And I'd like to thank you, Matt. Thank you, Manny. Thank you, John. I'm Brian Rexford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe.
0: The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.